0: This is the Urban Political. The podcast on urban theory, research and activism. Looking for love is probably one of the most obvious concerns in cities, and yet it is a fairly unrecognized issue in urban studies. My name is Markus Kipp, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Georg Simmel Zentrum for Metropolitan Studies at the Humboldt University in Berlin, And I welcome you to this new episode in Urban Political, in which we're going to look at the interplay between online dating apps and urban space. (music) Having made my own fascinating yet confusing adventures in online dating, this experience sparked my interest to explore further the question what online dating apps actually due to the lived experience in the physical city. Thus, I was looking for an expert to help me and us sort through these questions and I was very happy to finally encounter Dr. Sam Miles. Sam is a research fellow in social science at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London, UK and uh, works as a qualitative researcher focusing on sexual and reproductive health and rights and technology with a focus on marginalized populations, including young people. The first question I have for you is what made you interested in uh, doing research on online dating apps and how that interrelates with offline urban space?
1: Yeah. So that's a really funny question because everyone says to me, wow, you must be like the world's biggest user of online dating apps because you uh, have built, you built a whole PhD from it for you know, years and years. Uh, and the funny thing is I didn't. I was always a really terrible user of online dating apps. And I met my current partner uh, in a gay nightclub. So there's this whole debate about the um, dequeering of urban queer venues. Uh, especially uh, lesbian and gay venues in London. And I have an example of someone who actually still managed to, I don't know, be uh, partners or friends uh, through that nightlife. But the research uh, came about from a funded uh, UK ESRC, that's a research council uh, funded position to study something about technology and how it relates to the contemporary city. And I thought there's been kind of more and more written in the, in the previous decade about online identity and online community uh, in minority groups, let's say, but possibly less about the hybridization of online and offline life and how that might kind of impact on um, urban spaces as well as on uh, people who use technology. So what are they getting out of these technologies? And also what, how might these technologies limit other potentials or other ways of living? what are the most uh, striking insights that you have gained throughout your research? Um, so one of the things that's very interesting to me is that uh, the media across, let's say the global North has a real obsession with technology and how it kind of relates to sexual identity and sexual minorities. So one of the obsessions, for example, is pornography, uh, which People are always conjecturing about and worrying about and writing panicked media stories about, but not researching very much. Now, whether you can, you know, receive research funding to ever do this kind of social science intervention, we've yet to see, because it hasn't worked in my case yet. But I think that's one way in which technology is very interesting for bodies and communities. Um, uh, But when it comes to dating apps, the picture is very mixed. So we have, it's exactly... Ten years since Grindr, uh, a popular male-male partner-seeking app, was developed in 2009. And for a long time, it was the second biggest use of GPS location sensing. So that is a GPS um, location-aware sensor in your phone that measures other people by order of proximity to you. Um, So dating apps were the second largest use of this GPS data until, I think, Uber kind of took over the number one biggest use of GPS location mapping was Google Maps Um, so for users of these apps they simultaneously open up a new world of potential connections whether that's for relationships social relationships or one-off sex or sexual relationships and on the other hand they create a kind of ambivalence as to whether they're satisfying to use frequently they seem not to be for users or frustrating and also how it interplays with how you live your life offline So I don't believe that online and offline space are two separate spaces. I think by this point, they're very much hybridized. And yet there's all these ways in which there are kind of slippages or breakdowns in that hybridization. So we assume that these things are really tied into each other and you can meet online and then it will result in an offline meeting and all that's bound into the same life. But plenty of times I hear from people in interview uh, in all the ways that that actually doesn't, doesn't pan out as being the case so for example people talk about catfishing so that's pretending to be someone you're not online and then the kind of meeting becomes awkward or about revenge porn where you have shared uh, compromising photos of your naked body and it's shared with other people or it is used as a kind of threat against you. Uh, but at the same time, that's not to kind of join in with a moral panic that I think that the media like to propagate when it comes to a sexual minorities, so LGBTQ people, and b technology as being scary and unregulated. I just think that there's positive and negative impacts to uh, online dating apps.
0: Could you give those unfamiliar with uh, online dating apps? a quick idea of
1: how these work mm-hmm. so uh, the most popular app for men seeking men uh is grinder it's 10 years old so it's 10 this year and it uses quite a sophisticated uh, gps mapping tool where you will have your profile and you'll be presented on your homepage with a grid of other users Uh, With a photo profile and maybe some vital statistics, age, um, height, weight, um, controversially, ethnicity, um, and sometimes a kind of sexual preference. So a kind of sexual preference for sexual practice. And those are ordered from most uh, so closest to furthest away on a grid of about 100. And as you move around, especially the city where density of human habitation is high, the grid reorders automatically based on who becomes closer and who becomes further away. So it's a kind of fascinating study on overlaying your physical urban environment with another queerer environment that exists on top. So for example, in a skyscraper in New York City, you might have hundreds of people, all of whom are reading is 50 or 100 meters away, but they can be up and down as well as side to side. Yeah,
0: can you uh, give me an idea of how many people are currently using online dating apps in the UK or anywhere else?
1: Yeah, so it's really hard to come by because private app developers are quite reluctant to talk about their user bases. And also it's hard to disaggregate by group. So as of 2018, uh, so that's last year, Grindr has a statistic that it hits 197 countries worldwide and has three to four million users on a daily basis. So kind of a lot more than that, probably on an occasional basis. One of the things that's interesting about that is that Grindr is used in very socially repressive environments. So, for example, countries in the Middle East that have punitive same-sex or sodomy laws still have a quite active grinder user user base. So in that sense, it's quite liberating, I suppose, for users who are in their living conditions in a repressed environment, but can be finding community online. What uh,
0: do you find in terms of uh, whether online dating apps work? Do they actually help uh, people? Find partners, romantic relationships, uh, engagements, sex—is—is um,
1: is, is that actually a helpful tool? Uh, it seems to be very helpful for some people. So I wrote a chapter <clears throat> in a book this year called um, "Going the Distance." It's got a subclause, but we can—you can just Google "Going the Distance," and in it, I write about the three typologies or types of user. Uh, which, is, which is an amalgam that I've made of actual people that I've interviewed. So the role is that one that I've made up, but it's based on real narratives. And there are three types. One is the time waster, who is perceived by other people to always be chatting online, but not actually committing to a real life meeting. Uh, then you have the essentialist, who is someone who just goes in and says, where are you? Are you free? When are you free to have sex? So that's a very kind of essential or minimalist user. And they tend to get what they want, which is more often sex than an ongoing relationship. And then there's a third type of person who seems to use the app in the idealized or better represented way, which is for either sex or a relationship, but without neither wasting other people's time nor insulting other people. So they're the right user. So I think it's very easy for people to say these apps are useless, they're so unhelpful, they have ruined the, I don't know, especially gay male scene in cities because they have compounded the breakdown of um, queer urban venues. But at the same time, if you think of very marginalised communities or very rural communities, let's say rural Scottish Highlands, I've spoken to people for whom these apps are actually very important to their well-being. And it's not just about dating, but it's about building at some level, even if it is not totally successful, a kind of online community. And for them, it's not fun. It's kind of a a lifeline or a route into like-minded people. Can you give us an an idea of
0: how different uh, gender and sexual uh, identities use these uh, these apps? Uh, Is there uh, significant
1: differences? Um, So that's a really good question. The market is definitely dominated by male-male apps. Um, That's not to say that there aren't lots of other options out there, but some of those options are less commercially invested in. So Grindr is worth more money, let's say, because <clears throat> it has a large user base. Um, there's been a slower to start uh, women seeking women or female seeking female app offering. Um, and there's various arguments as to why that might be, whether it's security and so on. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it answers the question to say these apps might not be secure for women because that means that that's a whole opportunity for women seeking other women that's missed out. Um, And certainly I've spoken to trans people who uh, either enjoy and embrace or reject and don't don't get much from um, mainstream apps. Um, But certainly, like lots of things, you can be queer in terms of being non-heterosexual. But within that non-heterosexuality, certain types still dominate. So men. And male apps still dominate, and within those apps, there's a huge problem. Probably, uh, for across most contexts of racism, to mm-hmm. kind of a looks-based hierarchy. If you're handsome and white, and I don't know, straight acting, then you are at the top of the pyramid, and everyone else is kind of consigned to lower levels. And I think that's problematic and damaging. But I also think that recreates offline society. I think. Mm. On the, the internet, I think, um, I think it might be Larry Gross who writes, the internet is not utopia. It recreates some of the same problems that we see in our everyday physical lives. What do
0: um, Grindr and co. actually do to
1: counter the racism existent uh, in those platforms? So what they do is they have um, a moderating panel that finds... Um, Problematic profile, so you might get a profile saying no black guys or um, no um, no Asian no Asian men, and they will block that profile either indefinitely or for a limited amount of time. Um, Whether that happens in reality, I don't know because I think it's uh, kind of a huge task to try and moderate such a wide platform. I think the problem is the user that is saying that kind of, it's just a preference. And yet these preferences are always the same and they always punch down rather than being kind of appropriate, I think.
0: Now turning to the um, the companies that, that run these apps. Uh, so I know that some of these apps at least have uh, features uh, that allow um, members to to participate for free. Um so how, how do these companies uh, make money and what do they actually do with, with this
1: GP, uh, this huge amount of GPS data that they collect? Um, so that's a good question. Lots of the apps have slightly limited free usability in, as a way of encouraging users to pay for a premium version. So in a premium version, you can share a private folder of photos or like special photos or you can see more users. Um, So that's one way in which they make money, by pushing subscribers to a paid content. They also make money from advertising. Whether that's targeted or not is kind of another revenue. So you could do targeted advertising. Um, And they absolutely use users' data in probably uh, nefarious ways, like most contemporary digital technologies. Um, I'm under no illusion that Grindr, for example, uses... um, user data in probably problematic ways. There's been various leaks this year about um, uh, leaking user data to pharmaceutical companies or health insurers because it will have uh, information on HIV status, which is obviously hugely problematic for users mm. who have not consented to that data sharing. Um, so I don't believe for a minute that any of these companies are acting particularly in users' best interest. But as we know from the way that we use Google or Facebook, lots of people make that kind of judgment call and keep on using the apps. You spoke earlier about the dear
0: queering of queer venues with the use of online dating apps, no? So could you uh, explain to us a
1: bit more how that relationship uh, functions or not? Sure. Sure. So there's an argument, which I'm kind of on the fence about. I think there are reasons to agree with this argument and also problems that I have with it. But there is an argument that by making uh, online connection and encounter so much easier, you are able to sidestep the necessity of going to a gay bar to meet other people, let's say, who are also gay men or also men who have sex with men, let's say, because lots of men don't identify as gay or bisexual, but still seek Relationships or sex with other men, and because that is so easy to meet online, it kind of the argument goes means that there's less and less need to go to a gay bar or to go to, in in the case of women, maybe to a lesbian bar, and therefore these bars are seeing less and less um, custom. And that also, when people go to these bars, they are using their phones to work out who's who in the bar or whether this person will um, approach them online, even if they might not approach them offline. So there's this idea that some of the historical markers of gay or queer life, like a gay bar or a bathhouse or a sauna, or even a community space, is being sidelined by this hugely um, rapid expansion in online technology. Now, my issue with that argument is that I believe that That is only a compounding factor or or another factor in a larger economic shift in which most bars and pubs are struggling in large urban centers of the global north like London, Paris, New York, let's say places like Berlin. But, you know, that's another conversation. I think there's a larger economic shift where people who run bars and pubs who aren't part of a chain and who don't have lots of custom anyway, because people are hardly kind of beating down the door to the average gay bar. You know, it's a process of ongoing gentrification in areas in which queer venues often happen. So I'm not sure that I would blame digital, t- digital technology entirely for the decline in some of these bars. Mm.
0: Is there an, an argument uh, going on about how, how online dating apps and, I don't know, straight clubs,
1: uh, how, how that relationship um, unfolds? Well, that's a really good point. Uh, So one thing that's funny is that uh, mainstream heterosexist, let's say, or kind of heteronormative media tend to be scandalized by Tinder, which uh, kind of goes across um, straight or non-straight partnerships as being somehow like Grindr, as in pro-sexual encounter or pro-hookup. And that's really quite kind of shocking for the media because that seems very untraditional. Mm Um, so there might be an argument that says if you can meet a partner online, then you don't necessarily need to be in the bar to meet them. If you if what you want is a sexual encounter, you can skip that stage and say, would you like to come over to my house tonight after going out for drinks or would you like to come over? In reality, I think that people continue to meet in bars, but also have the option of sidestepping side that because the initial introduction is made on your phone online and that can be quite a thorough introduction and therefore you can sidestep to move straight to uh, a, a meetup at your house. I don't know, young people, this, uh, this teenage meme idea is Netflix and chill. So this idea that you'll come over and hang out and possibly have sex. That's part of a larger circulation of more casual sex which I have absolutely no problem with. I think it's an interesting development. Uh, That in heterosexual society it's finally kind of loosening up in that sense Mm. but yeah there absolutely might be reasons why digital technology contributes to changing patterns of let's say first dates or where first dates happen
0: Mm. I read in in your article Sex in the Digital City you also Uh, engaging an argument um, that uh, there's also a a loosening or a fragmenting sense of queer community. more and more a a trend towards specialized spaces, as I understood you, no? And uh, and that also has something to do with or also has effects on the urban space.
1: Yeah, I think there's a really interesting argument to be made and that has been made by people like um, Samuel Delaney, who wrote the book um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue in 1999. And he said he writes that Times Square in New York is a great example of a society or a kind of queer group of people. So he's including non-heterosexual people and sex workers and drug users and the homeless community and just a wide range of people making up a community of contact. So they weren't like each other necessarily, but they were all outsiders or different or precariously living in some sense. And they were able to make a kind of built up community around Times Square. The cleaning up, the gentrifying, the commodifying of Times Square meant that all of that community of contact and difference was washed away. And what kind of dominates instead is a much cleaner, more uptight kind of public display or or lack thereof and he calls that a a mix from socializing to networking and I do think that it's probably true that these digital technologies allow specific interactions to happen on a one-to-one or group basis in a way that removes some of the spontaneity or serendipity of meeting on the street. So I think there probably is an argument to say that urban street life has fractured in one sense because you are much less likely to see, I don't know, random displays of queerness or sex work or um, lesbian or trans communities having fun or partying on the street in an environment in which that's much less either permitted because of the way that streetscapes are regulated by the police, by governments, by councils, and also because a lot of that meeting can be done online and then move to a private space where you won't be hassled. So whilst I think that's probably the case, I also think that it's reasonable to see why that might be happening, because if you're in a home space in a group, let's say, so people might, I don't know, be having uh, sex or, or I don't know, taking drugs, then why would you be out in the street when you could have a more safe, closed community without other people's other people's monitoring of you? So I totally see that there are reasons why that kind of shift might be happening.
0: Mm. At the same time, I also um, imagine that also, uh, these online dating apps also would allow for greater uh, sexual experimentation. You know? uh, people, of course, have much greater ease to try themselves out, try new things, figure out their interests. So, So what 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 what
1: would you say to this? Um I, I'd say I agree. And I think it's one of the bigger strengths of the growth in the range of app products out there, that there really is an app for any kind of um, predilection or niche interest. And I absolutely embrace that. I think it's absolutely brilliant if you can form a a niche community and meet other people who are into, I don't know, a certain sexual practice or a certain kind of person that are dating apps for Jewish people and dating apps for young Muslims and dating apps for people who are interested in fetish. And I think that's a kind of brilliant use of the internet as a democratising tool where you can say. How can I network with other people who are like me, but who might not be local to me?
0: Did you, in your research, find people who actually were able to figure out or to develop their queer identity through uh, the use of uh, digital media?
1: Yes, it's very common that I talk to younger people. So let's say maybe university students or 18 year olds who, this is interesting, often use the apps underage. So they're not of legal age to be using these technologies and use them anyway. So that's always a question that I have kind of, how can we use this you know, at 16 or 15 when you're not allowed to? And they say, because I am so starved of a way of learning about my sexual identity, let's say, because I grew up in a small town in the north of the UK and I didn't know anyone like me. That for me, using this dating app was kind of like what the previous generation might have found on an online forum now that has its own implications for safety and security and age appropriate content but i thought that was a kind of interesting hacking of digital technology to find out information of either like minded people or learning from other people in a not too secure environment but you know that's not my that's not my place to comment on that but definitely people have talked about using these apps as a kind of growth experience into knowing who they are and mm-hmm. that should be celebrated
0: Hmm. Let's round this up with a few uh, ethical reflections on this uh, form of uh, online dating. And you've already um, said that you feel, I I, I guess, some sort of ambivalence. You celebrate some aspects of uh, this uh, technologies while while being more critical of others. Could you maybe give us a a, a summing up of this?
1: Yeah. So I think one thing to note is that people often tend to overhype a new kind of technology as being completely different to what went before. And I don't believe that that is the case. I think these digital apps are very interesting. And what's interesting about them is their GPS locational function, especially for how we move around the modern city. But every generation has their own kind of new technology. What I would say is that I do think that there's um, an excitement to the new opportunities and the new contacts opening up when you use an app like a dating app because they allow you to find people like you or people who are also not heterosexual let's say in an otherwise very straight kind of straight jacket let's say so that's kind of exciting I think some of the ambivalences for me come in the stories that I hear about people not having fun and not having a nice time so their expectations aren't met or they feel like they're wasting time or they are not sure what they're looking for and they haven't yet found it on these dating apps, but they're still using them in a kind of less than contented way. And that makes me wonder what, whether there's more things here that we could be working on or, or researching to help people be happy, because that's what I want. I want people to be happy.
0: Well, as a start, you made me happy. Sam, thank you very much for participating in this insightful conversation.
1: And thanks to you for listening.
0: For more information, visit our website urbanpolitical.podg.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.